want to take you back to the year 399 BC in Athens, Greece. There's a philosopher named Socrates, and he's about to take a drink. But this is not a festive occasion. Even though he's surrounded by friends, as Socrates prepares the drink, everyone but Socrates is crying. He's in prison. He had been arrested a few days prior and put on trial for undermining the traditional values and the religious beliefs of the city of Athens. They accused him of denying the existence of the gods of their city and poisoning and corrupting the minds of the religious youth in Athens. So a jury uh, tried Socrates. They found him guilty. They sentenced him to death. And Socrates was able to, if he chose, appeal that sentence and, and appeal for leniency, something else but the death penalty. But Socrates bravely and courageously said, I will gladly die for what I believe. The days following that trial and that sentencing, many of his friends came to visit Socrates in jail. And people said that Socrates smiled and, and was happy as he talked with his friends about what he believed, the very things for which he was going to die, he talked about in prison. When execution day arrived, Socrates was given a poisonous cup of hemlock to drink. One of the witnesses who was there is another famous philosopher named Plato, one of Socrates' students. And Plato wrote this about Socrates in that moment as he prepared to drink that bitter cup. He said he took the cup without trembling or changing color or expression. He then raised the cup to his lips and very cheerfully and quietly drained it. When his friends burst into tears, Socrates rebuked them for their absurd behavior and urged them to keep quiet and be brave. He died without fear, sorrow, or protest. Now, I want you to compare that account, the death of Socrates, with the account that we just read a moment ago from Matthew's Gospel. Socrates took his cup without trembling and drank it cheerfully. Jesus says his soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Socrates said to his friends, don't cry, be of good cheer. Jesus urges his friends to pray. Socrates did not appeal for leniency. Jesus repeatedly cries out to the Father, let this cup pass from me. In his excellent book, The, the Cross of Christ, John Stott asks a provocative question about those two stories. Was Socrates braver than Jesus? Or were their cups filled with different poisons? If you're not already there, I'm going to invite you to, once again, open your Bible to Matthew 26, beginning in verse 31. It is now late Thursday evening. Jesus and his disciples have celebrated the Passover and the Lord's Supper together. Judas has left the group. He's gone away to begin his evil work of betrayal. 
And Jesus is now leading his disciples towards a garden just at the base of the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. And in this text, we approach something that feels very much like holy ground. Commentator named William Barclay said that this is a text that we must approach on our knees. D.A. Carson said that the, the right response to Gethsemane is hushed worship. In this text, we see Jesus unlike we ever see him at any other point in the entire Gospels. Think about Christ and what we've seen so far. Every instance, he appears courageous and in control and confident. And here in Gethsemane, he is staggering and quivering on the ground. Why? Why can Socrates drink his cup cheerfully? Why Jesus prepares to drink this cup in agony? What is it that's going on in this story? I think we have to look at this text and say that the only satisfying answer is that Jesus appears differently in our text in Gethsemane because this is the darkest night of Jesus' life. You think about a dark night, when it really gets dark, you turn the flashlight on and you can see that light a little bit clearer than you can when it's not so dark. So too with Christ in our text. In his darkest night, we see something clearly about Jesus. The big idea I hope to communicate to you from God's word this morning is that in Jesus' darkest night, we clearly see who he truly is. I realize in this room, every time we gather, there might be some that do not know this Jesus. Here's my prayer for you this morning, if that's you. My prayer for you is that you would see Jesus clearly. The Bible tells us that the God of this world, Satan, blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the truth. Can I just challenge you just to if that's you this morning, just to pray a simple prayer, Father, will you help me to see, help me to see Jesus clearly this morning? Most of us in this room are followers of Jesus. We have seen him clearly. We have turned from our sins and put our trust in this Jesus. So my prayer for us this morning is that we would see him more clearly. This might be a slight oversimplification, but, but I think if we could trace all of our problems as Christians to their root, part of the problem is that we're not seeing something clearly about Jesus. So, may God use His Word in the darkness of Gethsemane to help us see the truth. God's help, I want to show you two truths that we clearly see in the darkness of Gethsemane. Truth number one, Jesus is truly human and truly God. Throughout the history of the church, there have been a number of false teachings about the humanity of Jesus. Some have taught that Jesus is not really human at all. It's kind of like Clark Kent 
right? Clark Kent's a mild-mannered reporter on the outside, but on the inside, he's just in disguise, right? He's a Kryptonian, and some people have taught falsely that Jesus merely appeared to be human on the outside, but he's not really human. Another false teaching that has been taught throughout the history of the church is that Jesus had a human body, but on the inside, he was God. In other words, his mind wasn't a human mind. His soul wasn't a human soul. But Jesus is truly, completely human in every sense that we are, yet without sin. Still others have said that Jesus was only human. He's just an ordinary guy. He's, maybe he's pretty special because he's connected to the divine spark that you can be connected to, too, if you'll just believe. In this text, we get a picture of Jesus that stands in stark contrast to all those false teachings about the humanity of Jesus. Here we see a Jesus who is truly human and truly God. He is not pretending to suffer. He is suffering. He is not merely suffering externally in his physical human body. He is suffering internally with the anguish of the soul. And, and he is not merely human or only human. He is also truly, completely God. I want to show you three proofs, three proofs from Gethsemane that demonstrate that Jesus is both truly human and truly God. Proof, proof number one, Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered. It's part of what it means to be human, isn't it? It's suffering. Look at verse 36 and verse 37. Then Jesus went with them, the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The word Gethsemane literally means olive press, uh, which means this is probably a garden of olive trees, and there was probably a, a great big press that would be used to take the olives and crush them and bring olive oil from those olives. And Just as this garden was a place where olives would be pressed, Jesus is about to be severely pressed and crushed here in this garden. He is absolutely devastated, and he wants companionship with his three dearest friends, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And so he says to the three of them, Peter, James, and John, come with me and pray. And he tells them that he is sorrowful and troubled. The words suggest deep distress, agony, excruciating sorrow, and anguish. Now, I, I know that most everyone in this room have felt deep and intense sorrow and anguish. Before. Maybe some of you are feeling it right now, right in this moment. And I would suggest to you that this is a sorrow more intense than any of us can imagine. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to his disciples, to Peter, James, and John, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. You ever seen a famous picture? of Jesus in Gethsemane? 
I don't have one to show on the screen, but you can just Google some of the famous artwork of Gethsemane. Jesus always has perfectly brushed hair, perfectly manicured nails, looking very stern and serious and religious and somber as he kneels against this rock. That is not what this scene looked like. In this moment, Jesus is quivering in agony. He says, my soul is so troubled, I feel like I could die from my anguish. And Luke's account of this event, Luke tells us that Jesus' sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is actually an extremely rare medical condition called hematidrosis, Basically, what happens is under extreme, extreme human stress, the blood vessels can rupture, causing blood to ooze into the sweat glands. Jesus is in absolute agony under such extreme stress that, that he feels like he is going to die. His physical body is responding to the internal anguish in his soul. Jesus is not like Clark Kent, merely pretending that he can't open the jar. Jesus is suffering in this moment. Which begs the question, why is Jesus so concerned about dying? If you've been following along with us as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew together, this is not the first time that Jesus has talked about his death. He's predicted it multiple times. One of the Gospels tells us that he, he set his face to Jerusalem. He's ready to die. This is why he came. So why in this moment is he in agony? What's the issue? The answer is given in verse 39. Going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is in agony because he doesn't want to drink the cup of suffering that he's about to drink. Martin Luther famously said that nobody was ever more afraid of death than Jesus. Might seem strange. The reason for that is because of what's in that cup. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, but for now, I want you to notice that what, what is happening in the garden right here in this moment is a struggle for obedience, a temptation, which leads us to the second proof of Jesus' humanity in our passage. Jesus suffered. Number two, Jesus struggled. Jesus struggled. Now, when I say Jesus struggled, I am not saying that Jesus sinned. If, if, if you're talking to a Christian friend and they ask you how you're doing and you say, man, I'm struggling. Usually what we mean by that is I'm sinning a lot and I need help. But that's not what the word struggle actually means. A better word for you probably in that moment would be to say, I'm losing, I'm giving in. A struggle implies fight, battle, fierce, stressful, anxiety-inducing struggle. Jesus is battling for obedience. Have you ever thought about how Jesus had to fight to obey? Perhaps you just thought that obedience was easy for Jesus. 
I mean, He's God, right? But He's also human. And in His humanity, obedience was sometimes hard. One of the songs we sang a moment ago talked about how Jesus alone bore the weight of true obedience. Think about your obedience. It has never been perfect obedience. You have never, dear friend, no matter how good you are, you have never committed a single act of perfect obedience without a shade of sin. Even in your most generous donation, was there not a bit of pride? Even in your baptism, Christian, was there not a, a bit of a desire to be seen for your own sake? Even in your Bible reading, is there not this checklist mentality? Even in your prayer, is there not this, this temptation to like the disciples fall asleep? Jesus alone bore the weight of true obedience, and it was a struggle. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Although he was a son, get this, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, the eternal son of God, learned obedience by experiencing it, right? He knew everything, and yet by experience, now he is experiencing the true weight of obedience and he's fighting and struggling to obey when he's tempted to walk away from the cross. How then did Jesus fight? The same way, dear brothers and sisters, that you and I ought to fight. He fought by praying. Through prayer. The battle for obedience in the garden occurred over three rounds. Round one... Jesus prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. In other words, Jesus is praying, if there's any other way, Father, please let there be another way and let me take it. He's tempted to escape the cross. That's round one. And Jesus gloriously, completely wins round one when he prays, not my will, what? But yours be done. He wins. But that's just, round, that's just round one. Round two is recorded for us in verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And notice, if you look carefully, Jesus' prayer has changed just slightly, hasn't it? The first prayer, he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Second prayer, he says, if this cup cannot pass, then let your will be done. Both prayers, he submitted to the will of the Father. But in the second prayer, Jesus is now not praying for a way to escape. He's praying for the courage to continue. Father, help me. I can't do this without your help. Father, help me. And then in round three, verse 44, Leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. 
Just like in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted three times here in the garden. You remember in the wilderness, Jesus used the weapon of Scripture. Scripture, Scripture, Scripture as he fights against the enemy. Here in the garden, Jesus uses the weapon of prayer, 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 prayer. Those are our weapons, Christian. Scripture and prayer. That's what Jesus uses in the garden. And we know that he wins round three and he's going to go faithfully to the cross because in verse 46, he says, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. John's gospel tells us as Peter is about to chop off the ear of somebody, John tells us that Jesus says, shouldn't I drink the cup that my father has given me to drink? In that moment, Jesus has won. He's won. The fight for obedience, the fight for faithfulness, the fight to obey the will of the Father has been won here in the garden. But it's a fight. It's a fight. Because Jesus is truly human. The fact that Jesus emerges absolutely victorious leads to our third proof, and that is that Jesus never sinned. Here's the proof of how Jesus is not only truly human, but truly God. Jesus never sinned. Now, if you've been around PBC for a while, you have heard us talk about the fact that all of us have sinned, right? By the way, we don't talk about that to depress you. Like, let's get a bunch of people in the room and let's see what we can say to make them feel horrible when they leave. You're all sinners! We don't do that to make you feel bad. We do that because that's the central message of the Bible. From the beginning of Genesis to the very end, the central human problem is sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That problem, our sin problem, first started long ago, get this, in another garden. In that garden, the first man, Adam, existed in perfect paradise. He had everything he wanted, everything he could have imagined. Everything to him was yes, with one no. If anybody could have been faithful in a garden temptation, it should have been Adam. Adam didn't have a sin nature. Adam was created perfect and placed into a perfect world. And yet, what happened in the garden? Adam said to God, not your will, but mine. And then he ate the forbidden fruit. Jesus, in this garden, prays, not my will, but yours. And he drinks the cursed cup. Adam's sin brought temporary pleasure, but lasting anguish for the human race. And Jesus' righteousness brought temporary anguish here in the garden and on the cross, but lasting pleasure for all who believe. Paul summarizes the difference between Adam and Jesus in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. How does Jesus make many righteous through his obedience? Because he is not merely a man. 
He is God. Truly man, truly God. Now, dear brothers and sisters and friends, how should we respond to these truths about Jesus? If Jesus is God, but not man, He cannot identify with us and our weaknesses, can He? He doesn't know what we're going through. But if Jesus is man, but not God, He can't help us in our weaknesses. He might be able to relate. Your brothers and sisters in this room can relate with you, but they often can't really help you. But if Jesus is the God-man, He can both relate with you in your suffering and help you in it. Listen to Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And here's the application. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the application. You can always run to Jesus. He's strong. He's God. He's kind. He's human. Go to Him boldly, Christian. Go to Him. Perhaps some of you need to boldly approach Jesus for the first time. To do this, you'll need to confess that you really need help. Maybe you're trying really hard to do this life thing on your own, and you're just falling short day after day after day. You've got to get to the place where you say, I can't do this. I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and no matter how hard I try, I cannot wipe my record clean. And you've got to come to the place, friend, where where you look to Jesus and you really believe that He can help you. He's the God-man. He lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death in your place. We invite you today, dear friend, when you can do it right in your seat, to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. But here's, here's the secret. After you do that, you got to keep running to Jesus. Christians, we know that, don't we? This is not the sort of thing you cross off your list and then you're done. We've got to keep running to Jesus. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters in the room this morning, are you faithfully running to Jesus? Are you asking God to take away your cup of suffering. I don't know what it is. You know. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a financial hardship. Maybe it's a physical challenge. Maybe it's a problem at work. Do you ask Jesus, let this cup pass from me? Are you willing to follow Jesus' example in prayer and ask the Father to deliver you? Are you willing to then say, not my will, but yours be done? Are you willing to to then go to the Father, battle in prayer, and say, Jesus, if you are not going to let this cup pass from me, if you're not going to take it away, will you help me to obey you? Are you persevering in prayer, even if it means asking for the same thing repeatedly? Are you trusting in your ability to do any of this well, or in the fact that Jesus did it all perfectly? Hebrews 12, verse 2 tells us that Jesus was able to endure the cross by looking 
beyond the shame of the cross to the joy that was set before Him. That's how we battle temptation, Christian. Look beyond the short-term trial. Look beyond the suffering. Look beyond the temptation. Look beyond the sin to the joy on the other side in faithfulness and obedience to Christ. Are you, dear friend, looking to Jesus? In the darkest night of Jesus, we see clearly who He truly is. He's truly human. He's truly God. But as we look at Jesus, we also see an important truth about ourselves. Really, about who we are in light of who Jesus is. For those of you that are followers of Jesus in this room, second truth in our text for us is that we are truly known and truly loved. We're truly known and truly loved. Tim Keller once wrote that to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. We can relate with that, can't we? You ever meet somebody and there's an instant connection? I was talking to a young man at the memorial service for our brother Cliff Hall last night. Just instantly connected with this guy. Great connection. Had a good conversation with him for a little bit. Sometimes you, you, you have that, right? Maybe, guys, it's a girl or gals, it's a guy. Maybe it's a friend. But there's just instant connection with a person. And maybe, man, this is really great. Man, this could be a really good friendship. This could be something really awesome. And then the doubt begins to set in. If they really knew me, they wouldn't really love me. If they really knew me, they wouldn't really love me. When we think of our closest relationships, don't we sometimes fear that people will stop loving us if they learn who we really are? Well, what do we do? We wear masks. We pretend. We, we present Photoshopped versions of ourselves. Perfectly airbrushed, church ready. Because if they truly know me with all my junk and all my garbage, they couldn't possibly love me. Think about this. If there was someone who knew absolutely everything there is to know about you, every shameful secret, Every dark thought, every bitter feeling, every selfish act. If there was a person that knew all of that about you, friend, and loved you anyways, wouldn't that be a game changer? Can I suggest to you, that's what we have, Christian, in Jesus? And we see it right here in the garden. Before we even get to the garden... Notice how well Jesus knows his disciples. Look with me at verse 31. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Notice how well Jesus knows his disciples. He makes in those verses two brutal predictions about what the disciples are going to do that night. Verse 31, he says, all of you guys are falling away. Next week, we'll watch Judas enter into the garden. And there will be a little bit of a resistance for a moment, but it's not going to last. And by the time the story is over, every single one of those 12 disciples is going to have fallen away from Jesus. All of them. When Jesus tells Peter this, we know Peter. He's brash. He's bold. He's confident. I love that about Peter. And yet when you're brash and bold and confident, sometimes you're wrong. Peter says, I'm not going to do it, Jesus. All these other jokers are going to do it. Not me. I'll die with you. And Jesus looks at Peter, perhaps with a tear in his eye, and he says, Peter, before morning, you're going to fall worse than all of them. Three times, you're going to say that you don't even know who I am. Peter refuses to believe it. Do you see how well Jesus knows his disciples? He knows what they're going to do in his darkest night. He knows how overconfident they are. He knows how sleepy they're going to become. He knows how frightened they will be. And yet, he loves them anyways. So how do you know he loves them? Because look at how he pursues them in the garden. First, he invited Peter, James, and John to watch and pray with him. Look at verse 40. Let's see how they're doing. Verse 40, after his first battle in prayer, Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, and I don't know why he just says it to Peter, but he says it to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Years ago, when Holly and I were dating, we would talk on the phone. We, over the summers, we had a long-distance relationship, and so we talked on the phone a lot. And there were many times we'd be talking on the phone, and I'd be a little tired after a long day of work, and so I'd lay down on the couch and put my phone on my ear, and I'd listen as she talked. And then something, you know, would happen. A few minutes would pass, or hours, I don't know, and I'd be awoken by the sound of silence. And I'd call Holly, fiercely apologizing. Sometimes I'd have to call four, five, six, seven, eight times, fill up her voicemail box. I'm so sorry. Now, if Holly had a reason to be frustrated in those moments, how much more does Jesus? But Jesus doesn't hang up on his disciples. Look at how he pursues them. Look at verse 41. He finds them sleeping, and he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What's the temptation? 
that they're facing right now. Jesus says, watch and pray. I don't want you to be tempted. What's the temptation? To fall away, right? They're going to fall away. Jesus, you're being tempted. You've got to watch and pray. You want to resist the temptation. Your spirit wants to, but your flesh is weak. So you need to pray. And yet, Jesus finds his friend sleeping, not once more, but twice. Now, here is what absolutely shocks me about this part of the story. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. He, he already told them, you're going to fall away. He already told Peter, you're going to deny me. And what is he doing? He's pursuing them in the garden. He's pleading with them. He's trying to get them to pray. He's trying to get them to fight. Peter, James, and John had been with Jesus for three years. They saw his glory on the mountain. And Jesus says, fight, fight, fight. Why? Because he loves them. Even though he truly knows them, he does not stop loving them. If you're in this room as an unbeliever, you're not a Christian, sometimes you're tempted to think that you have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. That is not what the Scriptures teach. Come to Jesus and all your filth and all your shame and all your baggage and all your garbage and all your sin and let Him clean you up. Let Him clean you up. To the Christians in the room, listen to me. Jesus is not surprised by your moments of greatest failure. Have you ever had horrible failure? Maybe you're ashamed to even think about it. Maybe you tried to bury it deep, dark, in the back of your mind, as far back as you can bury it. Maybe there were other people in your life that were absolutely shocked. I can't believe he did that. I can't believe she did that. Jesus was not surprised. And yet, he still loves you. I think there's an application for us here as the church, isn't there? If Jesus sees us and knows us, and loves us, shouldn't we also create a culture as a church where we fight to truly know and truly love one another? What does it look like for us to really know each other? Let's just start by knowing each other's names. If you're here as a member of Pocosin Baptist Church, just a challenge to you to come to services a little bit early or stay a little bit late and look for somebody you don't know and introduce yourself. We want to have a culture where we're truly known. It needs to go beyond that. What are you struggling with? How can I pray for you? How did you come to know Jesus? What, what sins are you battling right now that I can help you in that battle? Now, that's probably not the second question you ask. What's your name and what sins are you struggling with? But eventually... I want to get to the point where we truly know each other and then truly love. We have a culture as a church where we are not absolutely shocked when someone says, I sinned today. 
What? We are a, this is a hospital for sinners. This is not a museum for saints. We're here because we're sinners. We already know the worst thing about every single person in this room. And that is that your sin was so heinous, it took the cross to pay the penalty. That is gloriously good news. So let's fight to have a culture where we're truly known and truly loved. Now, if you really think about it, if you really think about it, this type of love is kind of offensive. Here's what I mean. If you're honest, sometimes you think that this love should only be given to those who have already changed. I'm just enabling them. Change first. Show me you're really sorry. Show me you, you really mean it, and then I'll love you like this. That is not what Jesus does. But that should boggle your mind because if you know the story of the Bible, you know God is holy. How can a holy, righteous, perfect, just God love, truly love, hapless, hopeless, helpless sinners? The answer is found by looking at the cup that Jesus drank. Remember that question from John Stott's book that I began with? Was Socrates braver than Jesus, or were their cups filled with different poisons? Socrates drank the cup of physical suffering and death. If we're honest, that's not really a cup that anybody wants to drink. Nobody really wants to die. And yet there are plenty of people that face death with courage and joy. Socrates was one. But we could add to that list many famous followers of Jesus. Tomorrow is the 468-year anniversary of one such story. There's two English reformers named Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley that were burned at the stake because they refused to deny the gospel. And as the fires began to burn, Latimer said to Ridley, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. If men like Socrates and Latimer can drink the cup of death cheerfully, why is Jesus in such anguish? Because Jesus' cup is filled with a different poison. What's the poison in Jesus' cup? The scriptures repeatedly use the language of a cup to refer to God's wrath against sin. Job 21, 20 mentions the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. Jeremiah 25, 15 talks about a cup filled with the wine of God's wrath. So John Stott says the cup symbolized neither the physical pain of being flogged and crucified, nor the mental distress of being despised and rejected even by his own people. But rather, here's what it represents, the, the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world. In other words, of enduring the divine judgment that those sins deserved. On the cross, 
Jesus is going to drink a cup that Socrates couldn't have even imagined. On the cross, Jesus is going to swallow, absorb the totality of a holy God's righteous wrath against sin. And that is the reason. That's the only reason why a Christian can be truly known and truly loved. Because Jesus drank every drop. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but what? The whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Christian, you are fully known and fully loved because your debt was fully paid at the cross. He drank the wrath of God. That's the cup. That's what he drank. That's what he did for you. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, there is coming a day when you will drink that cup. But you don't have to. You can trust in Jesus today. You can trust in the cross today and believe that he absorbed all of God's anger in your place. Maybe you're skeptical. There are some that would say, well, my God is a God of love, not a God of wrath. The problem with that is you're trying to make God appear more loving, but you actually make his love cheap. It doesn't cost anything. Your God didn't pay anything to love you if he's a God without wrath. But if you believe in a holy God, a God with righteous wrath against sin, and you look here at Gethsemane, you see the price that Jesus paid to love you. No wonder he cried out, my father, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but yours be done. And the price Jesus pays to love us is a price that only the God-man can pay. Only a human can suffer and die. And only God can, an eternal God, can carry the weight of eternal sin against an eternal being. Eternal punishment that we deserve can only be paid by God. And so Jesus is able to truly love us and truly know us because he is truly God and truly human. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the baptism of a few young people who have believed these truths. But I want to ask you, what about you? Do you see the penalty that your sins deserve? Do you see how Jesus was tempted like we were, yet without sin? Do you believe that he died to pay the penalty for that sin? Do you believe that he rose again? If not, would you believe today? In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. Parents are going to head to the back and pick up their little ones so we can all observe the baptism to together. Uh, one of our elders will be at the white flag. He'd love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you after the service if you want to talk to someone about what it means to give your life to Jesus. There'd be nothing better that you could do today than that.
for we who are the people of God, here's what we need to do. We need to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous that he would love us like that. And as we look to him, we rejoice because we are truly known and truly loved. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your beloved son. Jesus, we thank you that you did not walk away from the cross. We thank you that you persevered. We thank you that you battled the temptation. We thank you that you were faithful even unto death on the cross. We thank you that you drank the bitter cup every last drop. And we can stand boldly before you not because we are good in and of ourselves, but because we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. May that be our joy today. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with me as we sing together.